This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by Wahlburgers. Well, at least it's about to be. We're going to place our order any second here. I'm going to go with Donnie's favorite, the barbecue bacon burger. Absolutely. That, that is the best thing in the menu. It's your, go, I will it's your as well. go-to? That is, that is it. Keith I'm Fauver? going with the side of tater tots there, too. Ooh, good yes. call. Tough, tough headlines this week. I need a little comfort food, so I'm going with the Thanksgiving Day sandwich. Turkey Ooh. stuffing. Mm. I'm going I'm to chase it with a little uh, cream sickle at the end. It's going to be nice. That sounded weird. <laughs> it really did. <laughs> Let's do the show. Can I help you? We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm going to have to go supersize. We need a political revolution. And we will make America great again. From the home office of Align Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Down go the policy priorities in Washington for employers as presidential chaos topples the business agenda. Plus, how did it go this week for a billionaire restaurant owner who stuck a 3% surcharge on bills over a local minimum wage increase? Those stories plus the legislative scorecard, including a warning from the IRS to employers over ACA requirements. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Sean Kelly, alongside Align Partners Joe Kefauver and Franklin Coley. And Joe Rinzel is not on vacation with the rest of Washington. He's right there in the bubble, working hard and following all the latest developments. Okay, so this was the White House's Infrastructure Week and an opportunity for the Trump administration to celebrate American manufacturing. I've been working on some other projects. Guys, how'd that all go? Went famously. Uh, <laughs> the uh, country's moving in the right direction. Renzel, any distractions in the bubble? No, I think everybody was uh, focused. It's infrastructure week. I don't think anything else is going on, right? Good, good, good. Okay, so business agendas, are they on track or what? what's happening? Yeah, no, it, clearly clearly around the uh, tragic set of events that, that occurred and absorbed all the oxygen in the president's comments, um, you know, we yet again kind of find ourselves in this familiar place where the conversation is anything but business priorities and, and business issues. Um, and yet again, it's another week where we're just, we're further away from making any progress on important items. When you say further away, I mean, we're like forever away. Would you say, Renzel? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this week is different, obviously, from past weeks. I, I think the the president has put himself on an island. You've got a lot of leading Republicans coming out against his comments related to Charlottesville. Um, you know, it really, in my mind, as it relates to kind of the business agenda and what we wanted to accomplish with Republicans in, in power in D.C., particularly around important issues like tax reform, you've just you've lost the bully pulpit. You've lost the ability for the president to be in a position where he's driving an agenda and at least um, you know using any kind of popularity that he may have had to force folks into certain boxes as it relates to tax reform and, and some of the issues that are on the table there. So you know I, I really think it's 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 not over yet and and I don't I just don't feel very positive about the progress that we might have been able to make. Joe Kefauver, jump in. Well I just you know I- this is, although each week brings another, you know, example, and this week was the, the worst by far, you know, it, it, it plays into his overall agenda, which in my opinion is an agenda of chaos. He, he came to disrupt every single thing of, that was the norm in the D.C. establishment, and he is clearly succeeding at that. Um, 
you know, this, this facade that he has some type of legislative agenda is, is just ridiculous. He has a, an agenda of chaos. To the extent the business community has an agenda, it will be started and adjudicated on Capitol Hill. It will not be started in the White House. It will not be led by the White House. It will be led on, on Capitol Hill. And so the question is, you know, does Trump's agenda of disruption and chaos overshadow our congressional agenda of action on key issues where we need help we need to reform on the tax system and we'll see whatever it may be and we'll see but i think the answer is probably yes it does overwhelm it um there's so many you know capitol hill is is always tough to get momentum we are tackling some or trying to tackle some of the thorniest issues like tax reform or infrastructure or health care and you really need as, as renzel said that bully pulpit yeah why is that so important because that focuses energy that focuses political energy, kind of that base that, you know, political pundits and the media talks about that Trump base, focusing all that energy behind these important policy initiatives was necessary to whip congressional Republicans and also some moderate Democrats behind some of these important policy outcomes and and key initiatives. And that's just gone now. You know, one of you said Trump is kind of putting himself on an island He's lost that bully pulpit. You can't build that that momentum that's necessary to achieve these generational uh, policy goals if you don't have that type of momentum coming out of the White House. And I think one of the, one of the additional problems is, you know, there's there's so many in this situation. But one of the additional problems is he's at a new level of radioactivity, just on a personal, you know, brand level. And we have we talked about it before in this in this pod many times. We have a lot of opportunities at the agency and regulatory level. Uh, and conversely to that, we have a very slow process of filling all these vacant, empty jobs. And it's been, it's been a, you know, a historically slow process for this administration to get the administration staffed. And this is going to hurt, you know, even who's going to sign up and go associate with this brand now. So this really hurts our, one of our problems and that there just aren't enough people to execute our agenda inside the, the agency level. And we saw some, some trip ups out of, OSHA, we see the SEC trip because there just there aren't people manning the manning the, the battle stations in those agencies. So as this happens, explain to business operators what happens then at the agency level. Do they just keep on going along the course of the Obama administration? Yeah, more or less. I, you know, not only there's political appointees obviously at the top of each department, and underneath, you know, the the undersecretaries all the way down to, uh, you know, the people answering the phones, and within each agency, within each department, there's usually political appointees steering the ship. Otherwise, the bureaucracy, you know, the civil servants are left to keep operating as, you know, they see fit essentially under the previous marching orders or any marching orders that have come from the top. But that's not, you know, they're not going to get in the cabinet secretary is not getting in the weeds of day-to-day management of staff in a particular agency. So essentially what you have is a lot of civil servant staff that are just, I suspect, kind of looking around and operating off of, you know, how they've been doing things since the Obama years. So Yeah, and a lot, a lot of these, you know, agencies are working on projects and issues that take years to come together. And so, you know, they've been working in a particular project or space for five or six years, and there's really no one to tell them not to do that anymore or pivot or, or, or change. And so it's really... There's so many layers of this onion that keep unraveling that just put 
the business community agenda, just as we've said a hundred times in this pod, it kicks you the curb. Joe Renzel, what is the effect of some of these advisory groups crumbling? And um, there was one headline in Politico, for example, that CEOs are now taking their Trump talks underground. So, so what is the effect of, of them crumbling? Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. I mean, it, it's certainly a reaction. You know, I, I think those CEOs, a lot of those uh, advisory groups are really, in my opinion, you know, photo ops. I mean, it's opportunities for the president to be sitting around, you know, in his CEO capacity and, and, and rubbing elbows with, with those out in the market. Um, none of those folks want to be associated with him anymore. And that's understandable given the track of, of media attention that's happened over the last week and many months. Um, it's, but that doesn't mean that the work's not going to continue to get done. You know, they're going to, they're still going to prioritize from a business perspective, again, issues like tax reform, issues like infrastructure, they're going to prioritize those. There's too much money on the table, uh, in terms of the need to get some of those issues done. Uh, and so they're going to drive, you know, the message down a rung or two and try and deal with folks like, uh, Gary Cohn and, and the treasury secretary and other folks that they feel like might be more. Um, you know, open to their message and less radioactive, as, as Keith Offer put it. Uh, whether or not that's successful, I think remains to be seen. You know, you've got a political dynamic that's going to come to play, that is coming to play uh, in terms of that bully pulpit again. You know, there was an opportunity to drive, and we talked about this before, you know, that was 2018 midterms. You got a lot of senators from the Democratic side that, you know, are up for re-election in states that Trump won. You know, those folks might have been gettable on some of these policies. Now they're looking at the politics and saying, you know, do I need to cross over? And, and the answer is probably not in some of those instances. Joe Kefauver, uh, give us a little history lesson here. Um, what was it like back when uh, Nixon was going through this whole uh, operating on an island? Because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. Back when I was protesting Vietnam in the streets. <laughs> Good morning, Vietnam! Just coming back, just flew back from Hanoi and was taking up as a private citizen again <laughs> after his service. So, so I, w- w- what was happening then that Nixon had the ability to still get things done? Yeah, so it's a little different set of circumstances, but, you know, Richard Nixon knew that his political... Uh, future, his political life at a certain point was in the hands of a Democratic Congress. Is this the Watergate process you know, and the obstruction of justice and that whole legal process? And so, you know, a lot of Nixon's most notable domestic achievements during his administration, you know, he's, he's best known for going to China and, and beginning that process with China, but for his, in his domestic agenda, a lot of that stuff happened post Watergate as he was trying to curry favor and build bridges to, you know, Democratic leaders that would ultimately decide his political fate. And, you know, things like OSHA and the EPA, that came out of that time. And so, you know, Nixon had, you know, a lot more domestic achievements than people realize. This particular president, although obviously it's a very different scenario, but he, he's not reliant. He, he, he has a party, a, a Congress of his own party. They, they are not going to move against him, and he knows that. So he has actually... He has no incentive to really do any type of outreach. He does, you know, and, and the infrastructure bill is a perfect example. He, he yeah. has that event last week, and who's standing next to him but people in his cabinet. There was no Democratic senator or no, you know, mayor, or there was nobody that had 
skin in the infrastructure game sitting next to him or standing next to him. He's not, he's not even reaching out to Democrats on a core thing that he could get something done. You know, you, there's even a more modern exam, example, too, right? Bill Clinton obviously had issues. Um, Are you saying my heyday wasn't modern? I'm, I'm, you, had a, you had a couple heydays, I think. Um, and Trying to bring this into the post-MTV launch yeah, era. That's right. What is that? Um, so the Clinton years, obviously he had some issues. There's a Republican wave. And when he was under fire, facing you know the, the greatest level of scrutiny, that, that in a lot of ways made him be a little more moderate, reach across the aisle, and really accomplish some, some longstanding bipartisan uh, pieces of legislation. So it's like a humbling effect politically. Yeah, I mean, this 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 president is not easily humbled. Apparently, no, apparently not. Yeah, and th- th- so these are different. These are different scenarios. There are different dynamics in play. I guess. I guess this little part of the segment is searching for a silver lining. Um, I mean, there's still well, maybe maybe we can't find a silver lining, but maybe we can at least answer the question: What should business operators be thinking now in terms of well, what do we do next? They don't know how long this is going to drag out, and we certainly don't. <clears throat> so, w- what should their mindset be about trying to get anything from their business agenda accomplished? I don't know. Keep listening to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we'll Check back that. next week. <laughs> we'll get to that next in week. Episode next forty. Week. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's kind of a, a, a wait-and-see game at this point. We could have literally answered that in a different way every week. Every week something happens that is relatively unprecedented. So um, it's tough to say at this point. I, I think that the answer is, and you're starting to see you know, media cover this, that you know, he, he is, he's made himself irrele- irrelevant in this process. Right, and so I think I think business leaders, CEOs, are just going to have to sit down with congressional leadership congressional, yeah. and just forge, you know, forge a path forward, and just f- ignore the circus at the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue. There's there's not going to be any leadership out of that building. There's it, just ignore it. And work at the agency level too. Uh, Joe Renzel, let me go back to you uh, and get to some uh, more statewide politics and the Senate primary in Alabama. Are you surprised at all about uh, how much the candidates in that were still trying to link themselves to Trump? And, and, and how do you see this playing out in other states, maybe? Yeah, it's, it's kind of the opposite dynamic of what we talked about earlier. Uh, you know, Alabama is obviously a very conservative state. Uh, you have Luther Strange and, and Moore running against each other and, and, and coming out of the primary, the two lead dogs. They were both, you know, through, through the course of that primary election, uh, competing to see who could, uh, you know, like Trump more. Uh, and that appeals to the electorate in Alabama. Um, you know, that's one state, and that's uh, different from a lot of parts of the country. Yeah, Roy, Roy Moore, in his uh, victory speech, basically said, D.C.'s scared of us, which is basically Kid Rock's. Um, that's his campaign slogan. <laughs> you would know. Oh, I was coming yeah. back to Kid Rock. That's right. And let's, let's go even deeper, guys. Kid Rock's all summer long, sweet home Alabama. <laughs> I don't know. I see it. There's a lot synergies. Of, there's a lot. There's a lot going on in there. That's all I know. I, I think the important thing in Alabama is understanding, and we've talked about it a lot with these national races. But there was a lot of local Alabama stuff that was going on that affected the outcome of this race, right? You know, Roy Moore. There was the conservative judge that got in trouble about the Ten Commandments and so forth, and blah blah blah. He's been but, removed from office twice. Yeah, right. And he was outspent ten to one in this race, right? And he came out ahead. 
Um, but remember, you know, the attorney general, former attorney general, Luther Strange, slow walked an investigation into the governor, right? When the governor was having his affair and subsequent resignation, the House of Representatives started an impeachment process in Alabama. Luther Strange's attorney general said, hold on, let me conduct the investigation. He they slow just, walks. They just on. call that good politics in Alabama. He, he slow walks the investigation and then. Jeff Sessions gets appointed, and then he goes to that same governor and says, hey, put me in as Sessions' replacement. So there's like this ethical stink around that whole process, which really hurt Luther Strange, plus the association with the establishment, plus the, the guy from Mitch McConnell's guy from Washington. So, you know, but let's not let Alabama be a marker for what's going on in the country. One of the most read stories in the Washington Post at the end of the week with all the other stories going on was this one. A billionaire-owned restaurant charged a minimum wage fee. Outrage ensued. Kefauver, what's the story behind this? Yeah, so the Ocean Air is a uh, high-end seafood restaurant in Washington, D.C., right downtown. It's a typical D.C. restaurant full of lobbyists, high-end, high checks, long lunches. You know, it's a bubble. bubble. Jerry Renzel starts his lunch there at <laughs> 10, 15 a.m. every day and concludes it's at 3 It's the old Wednesday martini spot. Yeah, absolutely. The, the Renzel Barn Grill. Um, <laughs> and they added, uh, started adding a, a surcharge to the bill, printed on the bill, of 3%, and acknowledging the high cost of doing business in Washington, D.C. with local regulations and a high minimum wage. So here's what the receipt said. I have it in front of me. Due to the rising costs of doing business in this location, including costs associated with higher minimum wage rates, a 3% surcharge has been added to your total bill. So this, what is it, a restaurant worker took a picture of it, sent it to a blog, and boom, it's all over the country now. Right. And so there's two issues here. One is kind of a legal compliance issue, and then the other is a reputational issue. Um, and taking the reputational issue first, if you do a surcharge like this, you're basically diving headfirst into the minimum wage conversation. So, you know, you, you've got a way, is that a good decision? Is that a bad decision? You know, do I really want to do this? But essentially, you're making yourself a centerpiece of that conversation. Yeah. I think most employers probably don't want to do that, but, you know... Clearly, at least someone at the Ocean Air thought it was a good idea. And again, this is this is not just a you know a restaurant. It's a, a unit of a small chain that's part of a large company called Landry's, and longtime CEO Tillman Fertitta. So he's been active and vocal on minimum wages in the past. So this is a really a political statement by the leadership, in, in my estimation, and a serious a, reputation consequence. Well, we'll see. Um, but at least for the time, at least for twenty four hours. <laughs> yeah, and you know. Uh, you know, he may have decided that, hey, I'm gonna. This is it. I'm gonna stake my claim on this issue, and we're gonna we're gonna make a political statement with our restaurant. And you know, employers can make that decision on their own. The other the other thing to can to think about is there's been some some legal issues around these surcharges. This is not the first time this has happened. We've seen this in other parts of the country, and it happened in Southern California a year or two ago. And there were some lawsuits, there were some actions by jurisdictions. Essentially there, some of the restaurants were found to have not advertised in their menus ahead of time and alerted customers ahead of time that this fee was going to, this 3% charge was going to be attached to the, uh, to the menu price. And so essentially it was deceptive advertising, right? Um, 
you know, taxes and, and, and other fees that are government mandated on the receipt, that's one thing. But when you start tacking on random kind of charges that you deem should be owned there and that's not reflected in the menu price, it's a problem. So any restaurateur that decides that they want to make a political stand, they just need to be careful of that legal or, you know, compliance issue. And let's be clear, you know, there, there are a lot of expensive markets to run a business in. Washington, D.C. is no different. But this is because any given day as a member of Congress. I bet you there's not a, any given yep. day where there's not at least one member of Congress having lunch or dinner in that restaurant near the shadow of the Capitol. And so this is more about, right. drive, as you said earlier, driving a conversation with a very you know, elite audience. It's time for the legislative scorecard. These are the top items affecting business operators around the country. And let's begin with paid leave. Franklin, what do you have? Yeah, first time paid sick leave in Michigan, the Michigan Time to Care Coalition, their uh, ballot language was approved. So they will begin collecting petitions and they have 180 days to uh, collect them all and get it on the ballot. Moving over to the state of Washington, the paid family leave law that was um, that was addressed this session, quite frankly, fixed. They're now taking public comment on that law and will until September 1st. So anyone that wants to weigh in may and needs to do so quickly. Finally, in Albuquerque, uh, next week, August 28th, absentee ballots are going out for the October 1st ballot, which right now will include a paid sick leave ballot item. Uh, opponents are challenging to that one last time in the state Supreme Court, so we should know in the next week or so if that's going to make it on the ballot. Probably will. And Joe Kefauver, a couple things happening at the agency level. Yeah, the um, you know with the with the failure of the repeal and replace process of the ACA, as we we've been so focused on that legislative process, we forget that the thing's still on the books and the requirements uh, accordingly are still on the books. And so the IRS <laughs> jumped into that void this week and just sent a general reminder to employers that, hey, you still have these reporting requirements. It's a law of the land and let's, let's, let's comply accordingly. And over at OSHA, the, the Obama administration had launched, uh, with the help of, of the employment community, an electronic portal where people could um, um, electronically submit worker injury claims and the Trump administration was going to delay that and OSHA went ahead and launched the portal anyway in July and here in August they deactivated it so there were some already some employers that were in that process that are kind of now no longer in that process so a lot of back and forth at OSHA. Uh, let's go back to uh, the tax issue uh, in California in particular Renzel uh, there's a potential or potential legislation dealing with the state's corporate tax rate what is that? Yeah, an issue we probably don't uh, spend too much time paying attention to, but affordable housing, uh, that's going to be a big issue coming into the next uh, session when they come back from their August break in California, um, trying to cover uh, funding for that. And you've got a California Assemblyman talking about uh, raising the state's corporate tax rate, uh, one full percentage point, raising about $500 million, um, only on companies with 500 or more employees. So. Uh, you know, it's not legislation yet, but uh, this debate will be ongoing here in the fall. Um, we'll be paying close attention to that, see what kind of additional liabilities, you know, some of our, our, our business operators might have moving forward in California. And this will be an interesting conversation to see how it plays out. This legislative effort is very similar to other income inequality conversations that are playing out around the country, whether it's a CEO tax or a millionaire's tax, or in this case, taxing corporations to pay for affordable housing. Um, so it'll be 
really interesting to see what happens around this in California. Over in Texas, the controversial bathroom bill uh, was being debated. What 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 ended up happening, Franklin? It ended up uh, going down. It went down. So yeah, failed to pass. Yeah. So re- reputational kind of you know bull that we dodged there. And that, that's a that's a win kind of for the business community that that opposed it. And Renzel, real quickly, just tell us, give us an update about menu labeling in New York. Yeah, so you had, um, you know, obviously this is that New York City law that conflicts with the federal law in terms of timing of menu labeling. Federal law says wait till May 2018. City law is talking about August 21st. They've delayed it for just a couple days uh, in terms of enforcement uh, to allow the two sides to continue to negotiate. You recall this is a case uh, to put a pause on that brought by the National Restaurant Association, National Association of Convenience Stores looking to delay that ordinance. Um, so short delay, uh, but speaks to hopeful progress, um, you know, as, as the judge works out both sides and determines whether or not um, that city law conflicts with federal law moving forward. So more to come on that. Franklin, why don't you close this out with an update about what's planned or potentially planned for the Labor Day weekend? Every year, in advance of, around, and then after Labor Day, it's, it's a, obviously a big day for labor. And it's a big day for the labor movement. Um, there's a lot of you've, inter- def- you've defined the holiday well. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of the media outlets. Christmas you know. kind of a big day for Santa. <laughs> Kids, Jesus. Um, yeah. So expect a lot of media coverage about the labor movement in and around Labor Day. It's it's not usually a day of protest. It's usually a day of kind of celebration where you know you go to a picnic. You don't go. Picket. Well, that's the way it used to be. In the last few years, it's turned into much more of a, here's our agenda. It's, it's, traditionally, it's been more of a day of celebration. And they may do some, they may do some protests. They may do some stuff like that. But it, it's more about bringing everyone together. And it's more rah-rah. And that's the way it's traditionally been. But Fight for 15's gathering petitions. They're going to do some different events. Um, and so we can just expect that there's going to be a narrative that week around the labor movement and it'll be a good test to see how many fight for 15 staffers are still out there spread out around the country pulling together events we'll keep track of all the protest organizing that happens over the coming weeks but for now that's all the time we have for this episode of working lunch we'll talk to you again soon